And welcome, planners, to the 14th episode of the very unofficial AICP podcast. I'm Jonathan Miller, and thank you all so much for joining. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed their weekend. I know that a lot is going on in everyone's lives these days that uh, apparently has just become the norm, uh, especially with studying for the AICP exam. So to update your day countdown, uh, registration is over. So if you missed it, you'll have to wait until the next round. And if you didn't miss it, you've got six to 20 days until the exam window. So it's crunch time. We are going to jam a bunch of more one-off topics today, but hopefully we can put it in a way to help you remember how it all worked and played out. So the late 1800s really emerged as a time when environmentalism started to take off. You could probably point to the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869 as a catalyst, since before then we really didn't see much of, well, the just plain beautiful country in the West. After that, though, explorers came from far and wide and really began to take notice of the sheer beauty of it. Well, that, and add to it growing tensions of the squalid living conditions in the cities, and bam! environmentalism began to take root, starting in a slightly unusual way. The ability to create national forests on an executive level, at least, didn't come about until the General Revision Act of 1891. But that was actually a reaction to a previously passed act from 1873, the Timber Culture Law Act. In short, since it isn't really our focus here, the Timber Culture Law Act basically gave away hundreds of acres if certain conditions were met, like planting trees in order to, well, cultivate the timber trade. This act, however, had, well, more holes in it than Swiss cheese. And land speculators, ranchers, mining companies, lots of people took extreme advantage of it. So much so that the General Revision Act, sometimes called the Land Revision Act, was passed in 1891. So, first thing was first. Section 1 of the act repealed the Timber Culture Law Act. Some following sections amended some other acts that were applicable at the time. But for our purposes here, they saved the best for last. Section 24, the last section, probably the most significant section of the whole thing, allowed the POTUS to create forest reserves on public lands by proclamation. Now, this doesn't mean that there weren't any national parks. Yellowstone was a national park in 1872, and the federal government had reserved several other lands, like Yosemite, which we will get to later. These reservations, though, were done through acts in Congress. Section 24 of the General Revision Act, though? Well, that allowed the president to create the forest reserves unilaterally, by proclamation. So this was actually so significant that uh, Section 24 sometimes gets its own name, the Forest Reserve Act of 1891, which is much more aptly named, but you have to remember that it was actually Section 24 of the General Revision Act, or Land Revision Act, depending on who you talk to, of 1891 that gave the president that power. 
and Benjamin Harrison, the then president, didn't waste any time putting it into effect. The Revision Act was passed on March 3rd, 1891. Uh, Side note, you will need to know the year, but not the exact date. So this is just a fun fact of just how fast the president put it to use. It was passed on March 3rd, 1891, and on March 30th, 1891, only 27 days later, President Harrison took 1.2 million acres of the Yellowstone Valley and added it to the very first national park, originally established in 1872 in Wyoming, Yellowstone National Park. Around the same time was the uh, emergence of arguably one of the most notable environmentalists of all time, John Muir. Hell, his nickname is John of the Mountains, and he's known as the father of national parks. Anyway, John Muir was a Scottish immigrant uh, as a very young kid and didn't exactly live an early life that would scream out environmentalist to you. Uh, First, he grew up extremely religious, memorizing almost all of the Old and New Testaments. Uh, Then he went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for two years, and he actually never graduated, never even registered as more than a freshman, uh, and probably took the most ad hoc collection of classes, basically, he just took whatever sounded interesting. He traveled around a bit after that and worked several odd jobs, and thanks to a weird accident at a factory that nearly left him blind, he decided enough was enough and that he had found his purpose. According to him, after this accident, quote, This affliction has driven me to the sweet fields. God has to nearly kill us sometimes to teach us lessons, unquote. So at this point, he walks south to Florida from Kentucky. Then he hops a random ship to Cuba. Then he goes to New York, and then finally to San Francisco. This guy did a lot of traveling, uh, and he did a lot of botanical studies along the way. So once in San Francisco, he traveled out to the Yosemite Valley where he was just immediately taken in by everything that he saw. He even built a cabin along Yosemite Creek where he had lived for a couple years, and fun fact, he built the cabin in a way so that it overlapped slightly with the creek so that it would run through the corner uh, in order to hear the running water all the time. Anyways, he continued traveling and studying and eventually took on a pretty significant role as a preservationist, and his first effort was Yosemite Valley. Now, remember Yosemite Valley was already pulled from the private lands. These were public lands, and that was done by a congressional act in 1864. But it wasn't under federal protections. It was a state park. So, at this time, there were homesteaders who had taken up living on the land despite it being public, and the state and federal governments didn't really have any ability to enforce evictions to kick them out. So the homesteaders, they had domesticated livestock, aka sheep, all over Yosemite and the Sierras, and John Muir spent considerable time studying the effects. In 1889, he eventually got the associate editor of Century Magazine to camp with him in Yosemite uh, to see the destruction of what he lovingly called hoofed locusts. And after seeing those effects, the associate editor agreed to print whatever Muir wanted and to help introduce a bill to make Yosemite a national park. Now remember, 1891 is still in the future and the General Revision Act hasn't happened yet. So Muir wrote and had published two articles, The Treasures of the Yosemite and Features of the Proposed National Park. 
and in 1890, Yosemite did in fact become a national park. Unfortunately though, they still had it under state control, which seems a bit odd to have a national park under state control, but you know, whatever. So based on the success of the Yosemite campaign, it's no wonder that Henry Sanger, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, uh, who was a professor at UC Berkeley, uh, approached Muir about forming a club dedicated to the recreational enjoyment of the Sierra Mountains. So in 1892, the Sierra Club was formed with John Muir as the first president. They didn't just promote the Sierras for recreation, though. They were actually very active in lobbying for environmentalism. Uh, almost immediately, efforts had come about to cut the newly minted Yosemite National Park in half, and as a result, the Sierra Club, which had 182 inaugural members, most of whom were scientists, did what scientists do and started holding educational and scientific meetings to promote Yosemite and the Sierra Mountains. Ultimately, they were successful in fending off the reduction and succeeded in finally getting Yosemite transferred from state to federal control. In 1896, though, Muir became acquainted with a guy named Gifford Pinchot. I know, it's a super special name. Anyways, Pinchot was an environmentalist in his own right, but much different than Muir. Muir was more of a preservationist, while Pinchot was more of a conservationist. And that distinction led to many debates between the two through articles uh, over the years. Pinchot believed that the forest reserves should be created for forest conservation. Essentially, these reserves could be used for timber, but only as trees were replanted to ensure sustainable logging practices. You see, it was his view that forestry was tree farming, and he wanted to ensure the long-term viability of tree farming, and in 1897, he got his wish when the Forest Service Organic Administration Act of 1897 was passed. Now, that was formally called the Sundry Civil Appropriations Act of 1897, which I don't think anyone would know what in the hell that was. So, the Forest Service Organic Administration Act, which is still a pretty rough name, basically permitted timber production as a reason for creating a forest reserve. It did some other things too, like it gave the Department of the Interior the authority to make the rules and regulations, uh, it gave the General Land Office the ability to hire the employees, and gave the mapping responsibilities to the USGS. While the General Land Revision Act gave the president the power to create forest reserves by proclamation, the Forest Service Organic Administration Act gave the power to regulate them to the Department of the Interior. Now our friend Gifford Pinchot, a chief forester of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, wasn't too happy though. You see, he had been advocating to have the reserves placed under the authority of the Department of Agriculture. That way, in his opinion, the forests and foresters would be under the same department. Our other friend, John Muir, and the Sierra Club agreed, and together, they were successful. 
1905, the Forest Transfer Act was passed, which basically just transferred the forest reserves from the Department of the Interior and General Land Office to the Department of Agriculture and the Bureau of Forestry. So, what did we learn today? Uh, a whole hell of a lot. Like, even trying to summarize this seems pretty daunting, but here we go. Due to a bunch of loopholes that no one saw in the Timber Culture Law Act of 1873, big business was monopolizing the timber trade on public land. So, Congress passed the General Revision Act of 1891 to, well, generally revise the acts before it. This nullified a lot of the loopholes, but it also gave the president the ability to create forest reserves by proclamation. At this same time, a Scottish immigrant named John Muir fell in love with nature and took on an activist role, trying to preserve the Yosemite Valley as a national park, just like the first national park, Yellowstone. And that was in 1872, by the way. Ultimately, Muir was successful, which gave him a bunch of notoriety, so in 1892, he helped form and became the first president of the Sierra Club, arguably one of the first real environmentalist advocacy groups. Shortly after that, Muir butted heads with a conservationist named Gifford Pinchot, who eventually became the chief forester of the Department of Agriculture, and he advocated to allow timbering, read as tree farming, on forest reserves, and he got his wish in 1897 with the Forest Service Organic Administration Act. He complained about that, though, because he wanted the control of the forests with the foresters and the Department of Agriculture, and he eventually got that wish, too, in 1905 when Washington passed the Forest Transfer Act. That is a mouthful. And there you have it, the windmill version of the General Revision Act, John Muir, the Sierra Club, the Forest Service Organic Administration Act, Gifford Pinchot, and the Forest Transfer Act. If you want to know any more about any of these topics, uh, links to all of the information that was used in putting this episode together is in the show notes. For those of you playing along at home, our question last week was, what was Henry George's solution to the relationship between progress and poverty? This was more open-ended than I'd normally like, but our answer here was a single land tax. Remember, the relationship was that increasing progress resulted in increasing poverty. And it was his belief, and many agree, that a single land tax, if applied appropriately of course, could eliminate abject poverty altogether uh, and ensure that the benefits of progress were seen by everyone. If you want to play along this week, our question is going to be a little trickier, but you know, whatever. At least I, I probably assume it's tricky. I'm not going to fool any of you guys though because you're super smart. Uh, what was the first national park and when was it established? If you have any questions or comments, go ahead and email me or send me a message to the website, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Also, go on and click subscribe for this podcast on whatever platform you're using or choose wisely and sign up on the show's website so you can follow along with future episodes, help prepare for the exam, and supplement all of your other study regimens. And... If you know any planners taking the exam or know someone who finds this type of stuff interesting, make sure you share it out and leave a rating. I will totally be your best friend if you do. 
Make sure you tune in next week. It is going to be, again, all over the map, uh, literally and figuratively. So we've talked a lot about some of the historical events that helped guide planning and set the stage. But we are in the late 1800s now, and not one, not two, but three planning uh, methods, or I guess ideologies, uh, have emerged. In 1880, we get the first company town in Pullman, Illinois. Uh, In 1893, we get the very well-known World's Columbian Exposition, or Chicago World's Fair, whichever you want, which sparked the City Beautiful movement. And in 1898, we get the book which sparked the Garden City movement, Tomorrow, A Peaceful Path to Real Reform, by apparently a fan of alliteration, Ebenezer Howard. So be sure not to miss it, because those are some pretty significant topics. Anyways, thanks again, everyone. Until next time.